0: You see this really in the South. You look look, look over the history of Christianity in, in Georgia, in uh, in our neck of the woods. And if you were to plot it out, generally uh, there's not usually kind of a sudden shift. There's not usually one generation believes strongly in God, the next one just bails. That's a gradual shift, and I think we're seeing the fruit of that gradual shift um, in, in our day. You know, where things are not just uh, believed. They're, at best, assumed. And so when it comes to the Bible, we want to make sure that we're on the same page. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at, of course, this morning, uh, not the Bible. In one sense, and I'll explain why we're doing that to start off with. But we're we're going to be examining uh, some of the hot questions that you get, the question of the canon. Why do we have this Bible? Why do we not have the gospel where Jesus bullies kids and turns them into birds? Why would have, why we not have the gospel where the cross talks? You know, there's a gospel where the cross talks, and we'll we'll discuss that in its proper place. Why is that not one of our four? Um, we'll look at the relationship between the Word and the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a lot of discussion these days about how God speaks to us. We'll look at uh, that connection. We'll look at, as you have on your uh, schedule, a, a variety of questions about the nature of Scripture? The marks of Scripture? Is it clear? Is it not clear? Is it necessary? Is it sufficient? Um, is it uh, inspired? Is it inerrant? Uh, all those sort of questions that we, uh, we need to come upon. But this morning we begin with a very simple place. We begin in a very basic place. Uh, your outline will show you. We begin with the question simply of what does it mean to have revelation? Not the book, of course. Not the last book of the Bible. But what is Revelation itself, as a concept, as an idea. The word I mentioned there comes from the idea of something being disclosed or a veil uh, opened, an unveiling. You know, when you have a theater production and they have the curtain drawn and you start the the film, start the the play, you you unveil. You unveil the scene. Same idea here. The idea... Really, if you, um, if you have the idea of a drama, you're going to get a lot of what, the, what God's doing in the Bible. If you have this idea, not simply of, of a doctrine you have to memorize, but the Bible really is, and God's project of revealing himself really is, in some way, uh, a, a drama. It is a curtain being pulled back. God is showing us something. It is pulling back the veil. Now, of course, uh, if you go to any other religion, you go to a mosque, you go to a Buddhist temple, you... Um, I remember when I was back in college, we went to a Hindu temple and I got to offer some, uh, some celery to the elephant god Ganesha. Well, not the real god, but the, the idol, the statue of him, representing him. Right? It was fun, it was interesting. It was definitely an experience. I think there's one, uh, if you head uh, up northeast, if you head east out uh, 285, north, uh, 285 east, you'll, uh, you'll see it eventually. And um, all religions have the idea. That there is something right. The belief was, if I give my celery, if I give my uh, lettuce and my grain and my vegetables and my fine jewels to Ganesha, this elephant god, he will uh, protect me, and he will make sure that when I die, I come back as something better. I come back as a higher caste, for example. I don't come back as a fly. I don't come back as a dog. I come back as, uh, you know, maybe one of the warriors in society. That would be that would be great. Um, The point is that revelation is necessary. How do Hindus come up with the idea of an elephant god in the caste system? They would believe that it's been revealed to them. It's been revealed to them. The idea that when you offer something to a god, what you're doing is assuming that you're going to be pleasing that god. You offer yourselves this morning. And... Some of you are assuming that this is a good thing, that God is actually more pleased by you being here than by, not, by you not being here. God's more pleased by uh, you coming and singing praise to him than not. That's the assumption that at, at, at the root of Christianity, but as uh, Herman Bobink, Abraham Kuyper's kind of sidekick, in some ways better than Kuyper, I would argue, but Herman Bobink, Dutch guy, he says this, the history of religion proves that revelation is necessary to all religions. Um, Every, every person has a belief in the supernatural. This is why, this is a side note. I mean, the obvious counter-argument is, what about the atheists? who don't say there's a God at all. They just believe in the material world. It's funny when you go down to Savannah. Um, I know uh, some, some folks are down Savannah right now. I think Jim and Len are having a good time. Uh, or they did a couple weeks ago. Uh, but um, we'll be down in Savannah at some point in time. We like it. What's funny is the number of people who were obsessed about going on the ghost tours in Savannah. You always see them going around if we're walking around. You talk to those people, and and many of them may not be Christian at all. They may not believe in any higher power. But what do they what do they love to talk about? Ghost. You look at the scientists like Darwin and others in the Victorian era that were hard, you know, atheists, materialists. It's fascinating how many in their personal lives when things got tough, what did they do? They went to a medium, a fortune teller. They went to a seance. Huge. Seances were huge. I don't mean, this is not a class on seances, I'm so sorry, but to, just to prove the point that uh, it's very hard to be a totally committed atheist when you come down to it. You have to repress things. You have to reject things. Temptation in our world is to love something that is supernatural, that is above us. Um, I don't want to spend much time on that. Um, so, Revelation, basic establishment, establishing the basic that every religion has it, every person uh, in some way, shape, or form believes in a pulling back of the veil of something bigger. Even Hitler believes in, in pulling back the veil of the German people, the will of the people. right? Uh, so Even Nietzsche has, has something similar to this. Nevertheless, what is required in Revelation? What's required in in, in an act of revelation are three things. They're there in your outline. First, you have to have a revealer. You have to have somebody who reveals, who unveils, a giver, if you will. Then you have to have, second, a receiver, a hearer, or an audience, if you will. And then third, you have to have content, the actual revelation itself. You have the giver, you have the hearer, you have the content itself. Now, as we think about God, God, of course, in Scripture, in Christianity, God is the giver. God is the revealer. He is the one who gives us Himself. He reveals. This is a crucial fact as we begin our discussion today. As we even just think about revelation itself, we have to realize that God reveals Himself. God does not simply reveal facts. It's not enough to say that God just reveals principles or facts or ideas. But God reveals personal knowledge and propositional knowledge. His knowledge, what we get when we come to receive from God, we get truths, we get revelation, we get uh, propositions. We also get a person. It's like your husband or your wife or your friend, right? You know this. In any relationship you have, you may know that so-and-so is, you know, six feet, blue eyes, X amount of years old, right? You may know they like the color green or whatever. You know facts about them, but as you know facts about them, you begin to know who they are. You cannot simply know facts without coming to know something of the the thing you're looking at, the person you're talking to, the person you're thinking about. You now know they have green eyes. So when you think about them, you think of a green-eyed person. I say this because there are some folks out there, some Christians out there who think that, you know, all we need to do is to believe the truth. All we need to do, often this this comes in the form of just give me the Ten Commandments or just give me the command to love the two great commandments, right? Christ says, love God and love neighbor. That's never enough, friends. Because in loving God, you have to come to love a person. You love Jesus Christ. You love Him. And you love what He says. Um, Now, when it comes to God's revelation, God is giving Himself. And He's giving Himself in accordance with His character. with what kind of a God He is, with who He is, therefore, logically, we can say that this revelation is uh, not um, a false or foolish revelation because God is all-knowing, because He's all-true, because He's all-good. Therefore, whatever we find, whatever we find is going to be wise and holy and good and true. Whatever you find, that God has revealed, is going to be amazing, perfect, holy, good, and true, because it comes from God. Therefore, and here's perhaps one of the key, key points, though God speaks to hostile hearers, we'll get to that down the road this morning, though God speaks of fundamentally fallen people, He is not trying to trick you. He's not trying to trap you when He tells you about Himself. He's not fundamentally a vindictive God. He's not just trying to give you enough info to hang yourself. At root, when God talks about Himself, when God tells you anything about Himself, He is doing so as a God who is love. He is coming to you and saying, creature, I love you. Here's a little bit about me. Here's something about who I am. He communicates who He is. And as I have the quote here by Philip Hughes, the old Westminster professor, uh, he says this great quote, classic quote, man is not dumb because God's not dumb. Man's not dumb because God's not In other words, <clears throat> God does not speak to uh, idiots. He speaks to fallen people. But intelligent, moral creatures, we are able, we have the capacity to receive the communication. We have the ability to get the phone call, if you will, or the email. We have, I hate to use the illustration, we have the internet reception, we have the radio uh, uh, receiver. We have the ability to hear what God is saying to us. We are, um, therefore, equipped. He has made us deliberately with the ability to understand Himself. So, that's, that's God, right? Therefore, last principle here before we get to the actual topic this morning uh, of General Revelation... We don't find a different God in nature than we find in Scripture. We don't find a different God. When you look around, you see the fall leaves falling. You see the the beauty of autumn. You see the glory. Some of y'all prefer spring or something. That's fine. All are different people. That's okay. Um, I still love you. Um, And you're so good people. But God is able to reveal Himself in the same way, a true way, in nature as He does in Scripture. We don't find a different God. We find in the Bible a God more fully revealed. More fully revealed. Any questions on that before we move on to uh, looking around and seeing what God has given? Yes, sir. Do you have options for me on the faculties of mind? Yeah, I think, uh, so the question is a very good question. <clears throat> what, what part of us is the radio receiver? What part of us is the capacity that actually hears and responds to God? Um, I, I would label that as, if we want to be scriptural about it, we can label it as God's image in us, right? The, the imago Dei, the fact that we are made in His image and likeness. As to what that is, you get a few different answers in the Bible. Of course, you get, um, some folks have, have looked at the ability to speak and to think, uh, I think if you go to Isaiah, certainly, God says, come, let us reason together. You know, you have that as, a, as, as one category. Uh, and then Ephesians and Colossians, Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10 speak about, at least the classic text, they speak about uh, God creating us in uh, moral righteousness and holiness after His image, after the image of Christ. Um, and so, if if you want to locate a, uh, a capacity, it's... Uh, it's, it's in our, I hate to use the word holistic, but it's in our holistic humanity. I don't know if we can put simply one faculty or another because God has reason, right? God has uh, affections, not passions like us that overwhelm him, but he has affections. He feels, um, and we're made in his image. Um, you might put a slight priority on reason. Lloyd-Jones would say, that truth comes first to our wreath and our brains, and then uh, it, it comes to our hearts, and then it expresses itself in our wills. Uh, so that may be a kind of, uh, that's Lloyd-Jones for you, for what that's worth. Um, but that, great. Any other questions? Good question. All right, going on then to uh, our topic today is general or natural revelation. Gen-rev or nat-rev, if you want to uh, abbreviate it, um, Let's talk about the terms first, general or natural. Why do we call it natural? We call it natural, Rev, because we are speaking here not about what God says in Scripture, but about what God reveals to us in nature, in the world. And I'm using world there, not in a bad sense, but world simply in the earth, in the creation, the things that are made, as the Bible talks about it. Um, Nature, history, if you want to use that as well, right. Um, our experience of the world, our knowledge of uh, the past. Uh, second, we call it general because of its scope. In other words, God reveals himself to all people at all times and in all places. I think this is a fascinating idea if you think about it. Do you realize there is not one second of your day or night that God is not speaking to you? Well, people love to say, oh, I wish God would speak to me. Oh, man. I just want God to tell me and talk to me. You know, if, if he was here, I'd listen. You hear that all the time, right? You think that sometimes. If he just told me what to do, I'd do it. It'd be so easy. But of course, one of the reasons why we begin with this, we, we begin here. We don't, we're in a class about the Bible. We're not starting with the Bible. Why not? Partly because God's already talking to you. He's already speaking every second of every day. God is talking to you right now. He's talking to you. Um, in the car right on the way home, he's talking to you. It's a beautiful thing if you think about it. Um, I don't want to get too, too far off that. That's me getting all misty here. But um, there's a concept here, not just a revelation, but we have to distinguish this. This is a hot topic. If, if you were a Baptist right now, this would be all the rage. There's a big debate over this. I'm not going to get into the big debate about it unless you want to afterwards. But uh, there's something called natural theology. Distinguish theology from revelation. Revelation comes from God. We are passive. We receive revelation. And whenever God speaks to us, because he cannot err, he speaks infallibly. He speaks infallibly. Now, natural theology is what we do in response. It's our active response to God's revelation. Classic example, the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, quiet example, the doctrine of God's providence. You look around the world, you'll see the, the seasons come, the seasons go, they keep coming, they keep going, the sun rises, the sun sets, sun rises again the next day. You look at that and you say, ah, from what God has told me, I see that he is a God who provides year-round. He is a God who always keeps the oxygen level at the precise amount I need to breathe in and out on earth. So natural theology is our arguments, they can be wrong. We can make mistakes. The key distinction here, right? God does not lie. God does not err. We can make mistakes. We can err when it comes to our constructions about God. Um, yeah. So why are we actually talking about this before? Why are we discussing this concept instead of just going to the Bible? Why are we going about talking about the world and creation and what God has witnessed uh, to himself instead of just going to the Bible. I think Warfield, B.B. Warfield here, the quote I have, uh, great quote. Warfield, the old guy back at Princeton 120 years ago. Uh, he taught Machen. He's a great, smart guy. Uh, in fact, just a side note, when the fundamentalists were looking for somebody to, to write on Scripture, they chose Warfield. Little little secret here is that the intellectuals in the kind of uh, fundamentalist movement in the 20th and 10s and early part of last century, they were all Presbyterians. Not all, but 90% of them were. Interesting factoid. Um, What about this? Without general revelation, special revelation, he means Scripture, would lack basis in the fundamental knowledge of God as the mighty and wise, righteous and good, maker and ruler of all things. Apart from this, the future revelation of this great God's intervention in the world for the salvation of sinners could not be intelligible, credible, or operative. Let me explain that. What he's saying there, <clears throat> is that if you didn't have nature, if you didn't have your conscience, if you didn't have creation, you wouldn't be able to understand the gospel. Let me just make a very basic point about this. These words come to us in a language. Is language something that's special only for Christians? Or is language something that everybody has? Everybody speaks English. <laughs> you may not like the kind of English I speak. He may not be able to understand it all the time. But everybody speaks English, and these words are written in our translation in English. Of course, the same for Greek and Hebrew. And unlike Islam, we do not believe that the languages are holy or inspired. There's nothing special about Greek or Hebrew. Nothing uniquely holy about the letters, the words, the grammar. It's natural, it's general revelation. We could not know apart from that. So, all right. Uh, any questions about that before we hit the Bible, we, we, speak, we look at what Scripture says about uh about this topic and see we kind of get in the in the in the details of it. Any questions on any of that? Great, yes sir. Yeah, again, I'll hit the same point, the great point, Greg. We do not meet a different God in nature than we do in Scripture. The same God, but more fully revealed. Same God. So biblical testimony, uh, obviously creation. you know, Opening chapter of the Bible, right? In creation, God reveals himself. We are told from the very start that God reveals himself in this world. He has made it. He is the creator. But I want to hit three key texts. There are more. But these are three classic ones uh, that I want to kind of just focus on. Get your Bibles out if you have have them. We'll look first at Psalm 19, 1 to 4. Somebody want to read Psalm 19? One to, not the whole thing, please. 1 to 4. Thank you very much. Yes, So, we have here David's classic, beautiful statement, poetic statement here, Psalm 19, on what what God does in this world. We begin here, first, the heavens declaring the glory of God. Now, we read in verse 2 that day pours out speech, night pours out knowledge. Let me ask this very basic question. Have you ever heard a cloud talk to you? I'm not seeing anybody say yes, which is a really good thing to know. Um, if you have, uh, you may want to get checked out. At the doctor, you may be on something. Um, clouds don't speak, right? The sky does not speak. The birds chirp a little bit, I suppose, but the heavens do not actually speak, literally. right? This is what uh, Derek Kidner comments on this. He says this is the paradox of wordless speech, the paradox of wordless speech, that the creation Testifies to God. Calvin has the great quote about this. Uh, The universe is for us a sort of mirror in which we can contemplate God. So the creation itself is like a mirror for us to look at and to contemplate God. Let me make a couple of comments on on these these verses here. Um, First, verse 2 Day to day, night to night. It's a constant revelation. I just mentioned a few minutes ago. In nature, in creation, God is always talking. He is constantly revealing Himself to us. Uh, There's an ordinary replenishment of the knowledge of... You never run out of the well of knowing God? Um, Verse 4. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. We have here just a clue that... um, this is a witness. This is a mirror you can't escape. It's inescapable. You cannot escape the truth that God reveals here. Now, anything else you all see? I mean, there's maybe more, but anything else you all see before we move on to Romans 1? You know, you all wanted to point out there? All right, Romans 1, 19 to 20. Somebody turn there, and if you all could... Uh, One person, please uh, could uh, could read it. That'd be great. One to one, nineteen and twenty. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. Excellent. Um, we see here more things about Revelation. The classic text, I'm sure you've read it before. Um, <clears throat> Paul's been talking about the, the fact that, that God revealed wrath against unrighteousness um, because people suppress the truth. He says, what is this truth? And He says, okay, uh, God has made known this truth to them. So The agent, the revealer, is God. God has made it known to them. God has spoken. He has shown it to them. Again, this is not, contrary to what some argue, uh, it, it's not impersonal. It's not, a, it's not a mechanical thing. It's not a kind of a clock. It's not, the world's not a great clock, as the deist thought, as Jefferson might think. Uh, it's not a great clock that you kind of wind up and let go. Um, now, second point. The place of revelation... Verse 20, in the things that have been made. Where is God revealing? The agent is God, the place of revelation, is the earth. Creation. The obvious point, but the point that just is very clearly pointed out here. In the things that have been made. What's the content? What does God tell us about himself in these things? Well, we have his existence and his character his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So the content is also God, that he exists, and his attributes, his power, his might, his divinity. How long? What's the extent ever since the creation of the world? How long has it been going on? Ever since the world was made, it's been talking to us. All the time. I mean, imagine that. All the time. God's been speaking. I mean, look, I think it's annoying when I have to be on hold and just talking to insurance people for an hour. Imagine God talking to you 24-7 and never getting bored by it. Right? God's revelation is never itself boring. We're the ones that get bored by it. It's just incredible. Um, Fifth, Revelation is clearly perceived. It is effective. This is an effective revelation. It doesn't fail. It it gets its point. God gets His point across. But the response, this is verse 21, is universally negative. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. We'll return to this as a key verse. We'll return to it in a few moments. Um, but the response is negative. People respond negatively to God's revelation. That's all of us, in this sense. Any, any question? anything else you all wanted to point out? These few verses, we'll hit, we'll hit Acts 14. Unless y'all had a, if you wanted to comment on. All right, Acts 14, 15-17. I'll read these. This is Paul and Barnabas at Lystra. They think Paul and Barnabas are the gods, Zeus and Hermes. And uh, here's, here's what Paul says in response. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are Men. Of like nature with you, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The key lesson here from Acts 14 is God's, uh, God's benevolence, God's goodness. God's goodness to us. He gives rain to all. He gives sun to all. He gives fruit to all. And notice here, it's not just He gives stuff, but notice what Paul says at the very end of verse 17. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's beautiful, isn't it? That God provides inward satisfaction for people who reject Him. He gladdens our hearts. He gives people enjoyment of things. This is why people can enjoy all sorts of things. This is why folks can enjoy Georgia winning yesterday. There's enjoyment in your heart. That's why, why you can enjoy a good meal. That's why you can enjoy a steak or whatever. If you're a vegetarian, you can do a good vegetarian meal, you know? That's why you can enjoy good food. And not at all be a Christian, but but respond to God's goodness. Or as a Christian, you can enjoy what God gives you, truly. Um, so God, God, God's very goodness to us is a witness that He exists and that He is benevolent to us. Questions on any of that? Okay, so what does God actually say here? Just something that's all up, really. We've already covered most of this. But uh, summarizing it, uh, <clears throat> what is the content of natural revelation? First, the content includes God's own being and His attributes. God tells us about who He is. Second, God tells us that we are responsible to Him. This is really Romans chapter 1. We are responsible to Him. In Romans 2, we find hearts. in Acts uh, 17, which we didn't look at, but you can look at, at the Areopagus. Paul talks about the coming judgment. There's a final judgment that's, that's coming. There's a future state of blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. God reveals that to all people. They're without excuse. However, there are three key limitations. There are three limits here to what natural revelation can give. There are three key limits uh, that we need to just summarize briefly. First, God limits himself, the first limit is God. God does not reveal that He is triune. He does not reveal the Son of the Spirit, for example, among many other other things. Second, salvation. These are the limits. There is no path for sinners to be saved. There is no way. There is no way for us to have atonement made for our sin. Third, authority. In creation, there is a limit to how far we can go. Because God did not write down His book of creation, His book of nature. It is authoritative as far as it goes, but we cannot check our mistakes. You can't check your work. There's it, To put it this way, Nature is not an open book test. You can't go and check your work and say, am I right about God from this, or am I wrong about God from this? There's no book you can go and look at. Um, it's still true, it's still real, it's still uh, infallible from God's point of view. But from our point of view, it's limited. All right, uh, any questions on that? We move on to ourselves. Who, who, who receives this? Of course we do, but any questions before we get that? All right, the audience, that's us. What do we know about the audience? You look around, you see the world, you look around, you see the trees, you see see creation, you see the mountains. Well, I've already mentioned, of course, that we are intelligent creatures. We can receive revelation. We do receive it. God speaks to us not as fools, but he speaks to us as those made in his image, those given and crowned with honor and glory those made, like Adam, as able to hear, able to listen. And yet, of course, the Bible tells us that though we are made in God's image, we walk with darkened understanding, Ephesians 4, uh, 17 and 18. We walk with futile minds. And there's been a bit of a controversy here that I will dig into for a second uh, over the question of uh, can unregenerate, unsaved humans actually have true knowledge of nature, can they actually have true knowledge? As Cornelius Van Til, some I mean, of y'all may know him, um, kind of the father of presuppositional apologetics and uh, big, big player in the in the Presbyterian world. He would argue uh, in some of his writings that no, uh, non Christians can't; they cannot come to a really true knowledge. You know, only the Christian, he'll famously say, infamously say, only the Christian can believe two plus two equals four really, when you come down to it. Um, now, <clears throat> that, that begs the question, has sin so influenced our minds that we cannot come to a true knowledge of God through his revelation in the world? I'm going to say here, of course, upshot is, I, I, I tend to fall more in the R.C. Sproul camp of things on this question. I think uh, Van Til's wrong at this point, as much as I appreciate other parts of his work. Because you have to negotiate two types of statements in the Bible. There are two types of verses that we have to deal with. The first is the reality, as Romans mentions, we've already looked at it before, that uh, our thinking has been deeply affected, our minds have been affected by sin. The first class of statements are those that say, yes, our uh, minds are depraved. We are fallen. The fall did not kind of leave our brain free as a kind of special class of You know, uh, no problem there. No, our, our thinking is flawed. It's corrupt. It's wrong. However, we already looked at this verse, Romans 121, second type of statement. For although they knew God. They knew God. They knew God. There is a kind of knowledge that says that those who are not Christians can and do know God. A key principle, and the upshot—if you want a practical principle for this—if you say that non-Christians can't truly know God in creation, uh, then their accountability for sins lessened, or even eliminated, if they never had a fair shot anyway. Whereas the Bible says they're without excuse; they knew God. And so, the best way to, to deal with this is to distinguish knowledge and knowledge, or to put it differently, types of knowing. You can know, you can intellectually grasp. If I tell my, uh, my Hindu friends, the Christian God says, you know, the God that I believe in uh, is the creator of all the world, they can understand that statement. They can understand that uh, doctrine and yet not know God intimately, personally. They can reject, right? They receive the truth, but exchange it for a lie which is, of course, what Romans goes into saying, right? So there is truth that is given. I mean, this is, of course, in part why uh, there is so much good that is done uh, by folks who aren't Christians in this world. That's why I, I don't have to ask my plumber, are you a Christian, before I ask him to come and fix the faucet. I can trust that he knows how to fix the faucet. Questions on that concept, on that discussion. All right, then. We'll, we'll finish here with the application of all this sort of stuff. I know we've kind of been heavy on uh, <clears throat> some more of the deep theology. Let me give you just the, the reasons why God does this. Why does God not just give us a Bible that's full of all the information we might need to know for everything? Um, why does he make us as people who have eyes to see and ears to hear? Let me give you a few a few reasons. First, uh, these are on your outline. Uh, first, it, it supplies an ongoing testimony to God's character. It tells us continually what God is like. Second, it reveals the requirements that God has for us, the reality of future judgment. Third, it aggravates our guilt before God. And then for Christians, I'll just quote Bob Inc., and then we'll have donut time. Christians find themselves at home in the world They're not strangers there. They see the God who rules creation as none other than the one they address as Father in Christ. I'll end with Bob Inc. We can go down and have some donuts. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we do thank you that you talk to us, you tell us about yourself. I pray we'd see you more deeply this week in the things that are made. I pray that you would give us that point of contact with our neighbors to communicate about these things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.